Thanks for downloading and listening to a Quick Timeout podcast presented by Dr. Dish Basketball. If you're in the market for a shooting machine, look no further than Dr. Dish Basketball's incredible lineup of shooting machines. Their CT, All-Star Plus, and Rebel Plus models have been bought by thousands of programs around the world, while their home model is being used by players all over the country, right in their own backyards and driveways. New to the lineup this year is the Dr. Dish facility model for those with basketball training businesses. These machines are must-have for those looking to take their shooting to the next level. To find out more, visit drdishbasketball.com. He's the author of the coming book, Spaced Out, How the NBA's Three-Point Revolution Changed Everything You Thought You Knew About Basketball. Mike Prada of The Athletic is with us today. Mike, great to have you on the show. Hey, thanks for thanks so much for having me. I gave a little bit of the book there in the title, kind of gives a little bit of maybe about what the premise is, but can you kind of flesh that out a little bit more? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, it's, uh, you know, maybe in the last eight years, the way I think of it is you've taken the basketball court and even though it is 94 by 48 or 50 feet, excuse me, in the NBA, most possessions were not played obviously in that space, but really we're played in like a much more self-contained space because the three-point shot was not as valuable and not as kind of used as it is now. And then really over the span of like less than half a decade or less than a decade, we have basically the three-point shot becomes so ubiquitous, so important to the way the game is played that the effect is that we now play on a court that's like in essence, 150% two times as large as big as the court we once played on. And so every single thing that we do, like every set, every play call, every action, every kind of decision that a player makes, every sort of defensive coverage has now got to account for like, hey, we got to cover twice as much space with the same number of players. That's a pretty damn big change. And I think Mm -hmm. it's a change that we haven't really wrapped our heads around. And so the goal of the book is to kind of take with it it's not really about like analytics and the importance of the three it's like okay this is the game we have now we shoot all these threes it's changed where people stand where people run plays to where people screen where people kind of start their actions what does all that mean for like questions big and small you know big questions like what does it mean to be a superstar and kind of more like schematic questions like what's the right way to defend a pick and roll how do we lift this or how do we what type of shake action should we run or something as simple as like how do we get a shooter who's got this motion that's optimized for 20 feet 20 foot shots now has to optimize their shooting motion for 30 foot shots how do we actually change that how do we move with it uh with the dribbling and so it's basically taking that premise of like we have just all of a sudden changed the playing surface of the court without adding more players so what does that mean how do we get here and now what does that mean for how the game is played and these truths that we seem to hold self-evident about what's good basketball what's a good set play what's a good strategy what is a good tactic we have to kind of rethink these all now because it's like we've changed the surface of the court there's a good chance that probably coaches I, I should have mentioned at the beginning are already looking for this book on Amazon. It doesn't actually come out until November of this year. But when I yeah, saw sorry it, sorry about that. Yeah, <laughs> sorry it's hard that. to yes. get you excited we about are, it. We are currently way. editing it as we speak. Uh, the draft has been submitted. The editor is on it. We are working on some cool graphics, but it is coming in the fall. So when I saw this, the title of it, I, I knew I wanted to have Mike on to talk about it. For basketball coaches in particular, I think it gives us kind of the why behind how the game is played today. 
and even getting the sense from from hearing some coaches talking, there's almost like this resistance to we don't like the way or in particular about like I don't like NBA basketball and the way that it's played. I don't necessarily know that that's a um, outcome of just like the NBA. I mean, you know, the book, Mike, is about the NBA, but really it, everything kind of trickles down and isn't necessarily mm-hmm. and what you're referring to there isn't even necessarily like a style for the NBA. The fact of the matter is this is something that I tried to look it up, but you know, Chuck Daly's old quote of offense is spacing and spacing is offense. Like mm-hmm. I'm sure he said that like 25, at least 20, 25 years ago. And to your point, it seems like it's only dramatically impacted the way that the game of basketball is being played in the last like five to seven years. Like, yeah. do you get that sense? And I don't even know oh, if he yeah. knew what, even knew what he was saying at the time. I know that he, he had a general idea about how space will help generate offense, but there almost seems to be like this misplaced. We attribute the way the game is played to just the fact that people are jacking up three-point attempts now. I, I don't, yeah. I don't feel like it's that way. No, no. And, and I think these are, that's actually the really funny thing is you look at, I remember I, the first chapter of the book talks a lot about like kind of the original adoption of the three point line back in 1979 and what was some of the resistance. And you read quotes, I think Red Holtzman, the famous Knicks coach is quoted as saying the three point line is going to add more space on the floor and that will create more space for the big man. So like, it's not like this idea has been super hard to understand. I think to me, the thing that really has changed there's a couple things i think that really changed the thinking on this one is the illegal defense rule i mean we talk a lot about the hand check rule but the illegal defense rule was significant because for the longest time you know you institutionalize one-on-one play by just limiting the ways that defenses could play help you know you had to be certain length from your man and all this and you know once you kind of open up that many for defenses and make that more sophisticated now all of a sudden Obviously, spacing is really important, but like you've kind of made it so spacing is really important because you can no longer station Mark Eaton and Manute Bull. I was watching a game from 1989, and like this was these were considered good tactics at the time. You'll watch Mark Eaton is just sort of standing 40 feet from the hoop on the right wing so that the, the Jazz can run Stockton Malone pick and roll, and then they're playing the Warriors, and it comes back the other way, and Manute Bull is doing the same thing. I mean, this is these are good tactics. They seem ridiculous now, but the only reason that these are good tactics was because of the illegal defense rule. I think once people started to get their heads wrapped around that, I think that was a key factor. And then I think a lot of it is psychological. You know, I, I found a quote from, I think Sam Mitchell was talking about Larry, uh, the Pacers, and Larry Brown's kind of view on the three-pointer it was like if you're good at it like you're allowed to shoot it in certain circumstances and that's it like you can shoot it if you're reggie miller and like otherwise like you're really not supposed to do that there's an element of control that you yield with the three-point shot even though they were still shooting jumpers they were still spacing the floor once you kind of get to that point i think it that that whole thing i think really capped the revolution because to present the threat from 30 feet away or kind of to capitalize on what red Holtzman is talking about, you have to actually shoot shots from out there. You never shoot them. I'm not going to guard you out there. And so I think there needed to be an attitude change that took a long time. And I think you started to see some of it kind of fray with the Suns in 2005. And I think really the warriors and Steph Curry changed a lot of that where suddenly now 
psychologically you have to be willing to relinquish some of the you know negative potential effects of what a three-point shot is in order to kind of create more chaos because that's the whole point right you're trying to add more places for the defense the defense to guard and like you're a coach i think most coaches work this way the thought of relinquishing control over something you already don't have a lot of control over that's really that that would scare me yeah so I don't know. To me, like that, that sort of explains a huge part of what happened is you needed to embrace chaos. There's, I, I think of there's a quote that I quote Jeff Van Gundy, Daryl Moore was talking about this maybe in 2008 or at a Sloan conference. Um, he was talking about the reference was from a two that when Jeff Van Gundy was a coach and they would chart all their plays and they found that their best play was just like when they called it random, which was when there was chaos in the game and our play didn't work and then we just had to figure stuff out and that was our best play and Daryl Morey looks at that and he's like well that kind of maybe tells us something why do we have all these sort of set plays when chaos wins and I think that's just hard to wrap your heads around you know once you know, even if you are kind of of the belief that like yes we have to space the floor to create driving lanes and that is not a new concept there's space in the floor and then there's like space in the floor like this mm-hmm. and I think it took a long time time and i think still coaches are trying to figure this out you know it's hard to ask a coach to relinquish some control some sort of inject some randomness some chaos some pace and space some trust your players into it i think it it's very hard and i think it took a long time for that to be proven to be successful and for people to feel psychologically that okay this is fine i my job is not to just tell these people what to do and sort of have them run these scripted plays. My job is to put them in positions and let their brains take over. That's a very hard thing. And I think that's a big reason why psychologically, even when the three point line was always there, it took a lot longer for, I think the the league as a whole to reimagine it's like sort of full potential. I think there's also this all always, it doesn't matter what it is, this romanticizing of the past but if you go back, mm-hmm. I, I don't know that many people have done what you did. I saw a clip on Twitter of what it looked like <laughs> when you didn't have the three-point line and you didn't have any of the other like rules or or you know imp- implementations yeah. of things. It was just hideous. It wasn't it wasn't aesthetically pleasing to watch. And so while I I understand that we're still trying to kind of get people to buy into pace and space, it really is creating this free flowing that I find is funny because we can all identify what good offense looks like. But then when you start describing, okay, well then this is how you coach it to look like that. To your point, I would guess that a lot of coaches, especially older coaches, they probably are a little bit resistant to that because of the relinquishing the control to allow guys to kind of play with that randomness. And I think too, that there's maybe this idea it's swung to the other direction of, randomness sounds like we're just running out there and just running all over the place, but it, it, it really isn't. You have a chapter about this in the book. If you want to talk a little bit about that, but like what actually is at the NBA level pace and space? Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's actually a really interesting thing that has kind of come about, you know, I think for a long time, and if you look at NBA history, there were some errors that were really fast. And then there's some errors that are really slow you know, the eighties were considered a fast break basketball era. And then the Pistons came around, they invented transition defense. The nineties become the slowdown era. Sixties uh, are really fast. Seventies slow down, whatever. What pace and space kind of has done 
is actually not necessarily speed the game up, although it has in terms of possessions per game and obviously high scoring. What it's essentially done is merge the half court and the fast break elements of the game into one thing, right? So you're now, again, you're using the entire court. When you get the rebound, you're in some ways your half court possession has just started. And I think we've seen a lot of teams, if you want to look at a team that does it really well right now, ironically, the Suns are just so good at this where the chess pieces that you're moving around to kind of get the shots you're opening up, you're now starting that process as soon as you get the rebound. So you're not, you're running, you're running up the court quickly. You're making quick decisions, but you're not all running really fast to get to the basket. You're running, you're flowing into what you do. I think that was, and particularly it's starting with D'Antoni's system and, you know, he had all his influences that was a huge change where you're not necessarily, you're just playing faster all the time. It's less about, you know, getting more fast breaks because they weren't like a, f- a high turnover forcing team, right? Like, it's not like they like full court press, like Nolan Richardson's old Arkansas teams and all that. They were, they were just sort of getting into stuff faster. They were kind of bringing the ball into the front court faster. They were kind of making the first pass quicker. They were making, quick decisions it, it was almost it's almost like you think of it as like less wasting time mm-hmm. and there is something about the i mean mike d'antoni's famous quote about it is you know the ball finds energy right that's the famous quote there is something about the act of moving and you sort of layer things on top of each other and then this is especially true once you're now playing on a bigger court more places to move that one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And all of a sudden you're you're taking a thing where you can diagram on a clipboard like this thing goes into this and then this goes into that. But you're not – there's no transition between them. It, it mm-hmm. Our human brains, our MBA brains, have more of a capacity to improvise than I think we gave it credit for. And once you sort of – the first step, though, is to be able to say, like, we're we're going to start what we're doing quicker. We're going to – we're not all going to just sort of run in charge. Like we're going to kind of almost experiment and let the, the sequence play out and let's see what players come up with. I think once you did that, once you sort of said like, Hey, you don't necessarily need to run basket to basket. You just have to run three point line to three point line and space the floor and play out of that. That I think started to open up a lot of different possibilities. And you've seen just remarkable innovation in the transition game over the last 10 years, over the last 15 years to the point where, I almost think we've reached a point where there is no offense and defense. We're almost approaching the point where you you have one continuous play and it all builds on each other. And that's the big change. There is no fast break. There is no half court set. There is just pace and space all the time. I do think that this is where college lags behind. But I do know that some are taking steps to this. We as coaches are still compartmentalizing everything into either our transition offense and then our half-court offense and then our transition defense and then our half-court defense. And then when we get the ball, that starts over again. And I'm starting to see coaches, even if you were just to go offense and defense, because a lot of times we're thinking of practicing those in practice. There is, though, Mm -hmm. the swing to the other side where coaches are only playing and they're basically telling what you just said. I mean, they're just playing basketball all the time, which is fine. But for younger players, that may be that may be difficult to kind of keep that separated in their mind. But I do think, to your point, next level college and high school coaches are starting to think when we get the ball, we're on offense. 
And I think from a practical standpoint, it is we're not allowing the defense to ever get set, which is where Mm -hmm. the NBA really excels. Because when I go from, if I'm thinking about it as being transitioned to now half court, there is going to be some kind of pause. I don't care what you do. There's going to be some kind of pause there, which then allows the defense to get set. Everything goes back to neutral. And now I have to start the train up the mountain again. And Mm -hmm. now you see the elite teams, really everybody's doing the NBA, but I I would say probably your elite NBA teams like the Suns and the the Celtics and the Bucks, especially like they're running down the floor and transitioning straight into their five out stuff. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see kind of if that trickles down, first of all. And I think it will because your coaches are starting to get younger. And to your point, I think some of the older ones are the ones that still want to hold on to control and let's bring it down and call a play out and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I I think it's a tough thing for coaches, you know, to sort of figure this out because you do need a structure. Yeah. You know, the NBA has the advantage of these guys are the best in the world and they can kind of figure some of the stuff out on the fly. So it's, it's not necessarily true that certain concepts can work downstream. I mean, I understand why that's a struggle, Uh, but you know, part of it too is, um, and I think this goes back to the illegal defense rule in particular. The reason that I think this has been challenging is that because of the way that coaches learned how to exploit that rule, where you're chasing everybody on one side, we're going to throw the ball to this guy. And like, there's an asymmetry where you have to, you know, there are only a certain number of things that defense can do about it the game became a station to station game. And so it became a game where you can like kind of hold the ball up over your head, like kind of sit, figure out what's going on. And it is a station to stage game. It is kind of like football on, on, on a court because there it's almost like you have down and distance and stuff. And so when you do that, the types of skills that you work through with players are much more, from a start, a stop position, you know, it is, there is not a flow because the illegal defense rule almost made it so that you didn't need one uh, in a lot of ways. And I think that was a rule that stemmed a lot from this fear that if we allow zones, then the stars won't be able to get the ball and people want to see the stars and we want to kind of showcase these stars and let them have this room to grow but what had happened was that the coaches got so good at kind of bastardizing that, that the stars are having it too easy. Mm-hmm. Once you allow the defense now to move in different places, then you create the development and the need for an offensive player to be kind of thinking on the fly a lot more because they're not just reading the guy in front of them and then waiting for somebody to rotate from a standstill position. You know, they've got guys flying in and out and in and out of their defensive schemes. They're reading the guy the pick and roll defender, you know, they're reading the nail guy, the low man, the, the peel switcher. And I'm probably going to invent a bunch of different terms that I probably may or may not exist, but you know, there's so many different way layers of reads now that, you know, if you try to read them all individually from a start stop position, you're just never going to get through any, everything. Mm-hmm. So once defense, I think became more of a five on five game, and you're starting to see this, then all of a sudden it's not just shooting that you need to order to spread those defenders out, you know, because now you can't just put Mark Eden 30 feet from the hoop. You know, if you do that, they'll just play four and five. Like there's no rule saying that where the defender has to stand. Once you start, it's not just shooting you kind of put as a premium. It's also this ability to map the floor and to be able to see the cause and effect and a bunch of options all at once. And, you know, there's a chapter in the book about passing and how we are 
without really realizing it, we are in a passing golden age. I mean, have you ever watched some of the like kind of crazy passes that they used to throw in like the seventies and eighties? Yeah. I used to, I was watching a lot of magic Johnson's no look passes and just like how crazed people got about some of the stuff he did. And then I'm watching a game today and I I can't, I must've counted like 30 no look passes or 30 look away passes from like a typical playoff game. There's one play that I referenced where like Taylor Horton Tucker in some random Knicks Lakers game just sort of flies one handed out of bounds and just whips a pass to a lifting Ben McLemore for a three. And it's like, wait a minute. Like, if he made that pass like 20 years ago, that would be like, holy, what, how did he see that? But the reason is one, the court is wider. So you can see more stuff. And two, every player has got to be able to take those snapshots. Now, you know, they're not playing just in front of their one guy. And so once you kind of allow defense defenders to go anywhere, and I know different levels have different rules about, I don't think there's any level that has an illegal defense rule like the NBA used to correct, but you know, there are different rules about how the zones work or whatever. Once you have this scenario where defenders have to kind of feel, see the whole court at all times and are positioned in different places. And you kind of have like different layers of, you know, you have your man, then you're sort of seeing the, the back line, then you're seeing all these cause and effects in your head. Then suddenly that just like only further enhances the need to play pace and space and to play with principles and flow, because these players are already having to process these, Kind of essentially, if you think no psychology, they're chunking these decisions together into like a lot of different groupings. And so once you reach that point, like what is the purpose of a set play in some ways? You know, the players are capable of making these reads on the fly because they now have to be. So you would want a system that would enhance that. And that would generally mean a system that is more spread, more open, more kind of multi-ball handler, quicker, faster moving and potentially one that has less direct control on the, from the coach's perspective. And I think different coaches merge the like kind of need to have some structure with the need to preserve flow. And that's a ongoing challenge for a lot of these coaches. That's almost like existential, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. a quick timeout podcast is sponsored by three on three hoops hub. If you're a basketball coach looking to grow your program, raise funds for your program or build your basketball business, you're going to want to check out what 3-on-3 Hoops Hub can do for you. 3-on-3 Hoops Hub has run over 350 3-on-3 basketball leagues for thousands of kids since 1997 and is helping coaches all across country do the same. 3-on-3 basketball is the ideal format for players to get more opportunities, work on all skills and positions, and have fun playing competitive basketball with their friends. You can bring 3-on-3 to your community and do it like an expert by learning from the best 3-on-3 Hoops Hub free training. To find out more and get access to the training, simply click the training.3on3hoopshub.com QTO link in the show notes below. You mentioned it a couple of times, so let me go ahead and ask it. In the terms that you've just been talking, when we saw Nick Nurse throw out a 2-3 zone or whatever it was, I can't remember what, which zone it was a couple of years ago, because of the way the NBA has been played in the media and really everyone was talking like it was the wheel being invented. And, <laughs> so and you're talking about like the box and one on Curry. The box and one. 2001. Couple, yeah. But I was just last night watching a game where both teams came down and back-to-back possessions, which is almost something you would have never seen probably five or 10 years ago. And it's given some problems too. It gave last night, it gave the 76ers some problems. And 
mm-hmm. they're not just staying in at one or two possessions. I mean, they're staying in it for extended periods of time and it's slowing things down. So in relationship yeah. to the pace and space, it's funny because some coaches are like, you know, you got to get the ball to the middle. Well, they got the ball to the middle. It's not that easy though, especially at, at this level. <laughs> so, right. You know, it's, I think in the book, I think you talk about like this on off and now it's getting back towards this on again with zone defenses. How do you describe that in the terms of what you've been writing about? And as you see the game going forward. Yeah, this is a topic that has gotten a lot of attention, uh, certainly in the national media, as you say, this idea, you talked about Toronto. I mean, Miami is sort of, you look at what they did in the, the bubble in particular with their zone where they've got Jimmy Butler and Andre Iguodala and Jay Crowder like up at the top. And they're, they're showing a version of that uh, in this Philly series. It's gotten a lot of attention, understandably in some ways. You know, I can understand just because zone – Zone has kind of been a four-letter word to the NBA throughout its history. I mean, there, I tell the story in the book of they literally allowed zone in, for the first season of the Basketball Association of America. And then when they weren't getting fans, their solution was, we're suddenly not going to allow zone anymore. That's why fans aren't here. <laughs> and it's been – that's where that starts. There is sort of this institutional, like, fear of it. But to the point we were talking about earlier, if defense is now a five-man operation, right, where – you can move into certain places where you couldn't move before. And now we've internalized that we've gotten, had this sort of evolution where like there were certain pick and roll coverages that were in vogue, you know, that there was the drop at the beginning of the 2010s. And, you know, for a while, the blitzing of the Miami heat was in vogue and then switching became a big thing with the warriors. And you kind of went through that transition. Ultimately, how different is a zone from your man principles anymore? It is a different prior alignment, but players all over the court, no matter what scheme you run, and this has been true increasingly even with drop schemes and deeper drop schemes, they're not just staying on their man anymore. The days of Roy Hibbert parked at the rim while George Hill fights over a screen and everybody stays at home and everybody shoots a mid-range jumper, I mean, they're not that long ago that that happened, but they're long gone. You look at the Bucks and the way they play, Giannis is not ever guarding a man really Mm -hmm. so to be able to tell a team like hey we're going to go zone now and you now have to like kind of be responsible for these certain elements and then you add that on top of the developing sort of rules around good switching and bad switching and sort of how the scram switch and the peel switch and now the i think they have like this new nexting thing in overseas i think coaches will know what i'm talking about just the the fact that players are kind of all in tune to like, hey, when this switch happens, I need to do this. There's sort of this evolving kind of scientific literature almost about like kind of what a good switch is. You combine all that together, and I think you saw this a little bit this year, and I think you're going to see it more in the future. Defense is finally figured out. I think there was a period for most of these 2010s where it's like, how do we guard this? Offense is way ahead of defense. Offensive numbers are going up, 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 up. Defense is now in a position where they can be as flexible as offense. And that is the way that they can shift schemes. They can shift assignments. They can go zone one possession, man another possession. There's more freedom. There's just more of a, a kind of an ability to think about defense as a five-man operation where two generations post the legal zone. 
the result is that it is simply easier to go to a zone, even if you haven't practiced it a lot, mm -hmm. because the concept of how a zone works, where you're guarding areas instead of a man, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, NBA, I mean, it's in the NBA at least, and I think this is true of all teams. Once you kind of have, you tell like kind of all five players have got to be in a certain place on a pick and roll coverage and they're guarding a certain area, I don't think it's too much of a leap to then practice like, hey, we're just going to start with you guarding in there, you know? And I think that's very – it's also interesting that who's at the top of the zone, who's at the bottom, how do you customize that. You know, Miami kind of really put their guys at the top. I love what Toronto does just intellectually, just this crazy like kind of in, out, in, out, in, out stuff. Um, and there's some interesting developing research, I think, being shown that we've been teaching closeouts all wrong. That's my, my for a long time, and now that's being fixed. I think defense is poised to have a bit of a revival this decade. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's going to show in terms of like kind of limiting three point attempts. In fact, if anything, I would, wouldn't be surprised if it means less shots at the rim and more jumpers as teams get better at collectively protecting the paint. But I do think that what you saw at the beginning of this year in the NBA, where the numbers went down quite a bit, they recovered. I think you're going to start to see some of that again happening in the future. I think defense is finally catching up mm -hmm. and that's the subject of one of the last chapters. And zone is just one example of how that's happening. I think it's just defense is now flexible in five man and zone was always been a five man type style of defense. So the transition's honestly pretty seamless for a lot of these players. Now we call it matchup zone, but really if everybody taught it this way, our zones would have been better for decades rather than yeah. I stand in my area and if somebody comes in my area, then I'll guard you. But if not, then I'm just going to kind of hang out until somebody comes in my area. Right. And the entire time we're teaching, basically, I hope somebody else is, you know, in another area because that guy's having to guard two guys on the backside and this may not turn out well. And somebody right. along the way was like, wait a second here. There's two guys on offense. There's one guy on defense. This isn't going to work well for us. You know, it's funny. You say the the just think of the phrase matchup zone and how contradictory that sounds. Yeah. Like, aren't all aren't all defenses in some way a matchup zone? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, but it's just well, funny today, how we've invented to, this. Today thing. they are. To your point, if yes. they weren't because we were just stuck on a guy face guarding. You know, four guys were face guarding a guy. Meanwhile, two guys were either playing pick and roll or you know Stockton alone were just going to town over there. But mm -hmm. again, we've wised up as to like, what's the point of this game to stop the ball? We, well, then we better make sure that that's our that's actually our number one priority. The ball is the most dangerous thing. I don't need to be worried about what might happen next so that I need to I need to go face guard this guy that's standing over here in the corner. He doesn't even have the basketball. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons the book is called Spaced Out is that it embraces a sort of again, a, a snapshot view of the sport. All players are kind of seeing, encoding everything happening as like a relationship between multiple mm -hmm. pieces uh, and a spatial alignment. There's a, there's just, there's a geometric understanding in the NBA that just hasn't existed in the past where you were thinking very much narrowly, because again, I don't think this is because the players were not intelligent in the past or, you know, even that we were teaching it wrong. It's, I think, downstream effect of the illegal defense rule and the hand-checking rule to a lesser extent requiring everybody to spread out and when that happens you've got to see multiple things you have to see it as a shape that mm -hmm. is constantly evolving and so when you're instructing what someone should be doing in a zone 
I imagine, and I'm not a coach, but I can, I'm just guessing you're probably not necessarily saying you have to guard the zone. You're describing that person's job in relation to what another person's job is or what Mm -hmm. everybody's job is. It's like when this happens, then you do this. Mm -hmm. And when you have this alignment, then you are here. And so your, your performance, and this is kind of an, this is probably not the time to have a defensive player of the year discussion, but I think it's like kind of an interesting subplot of this is, when every when defense is now a five man operation, as it kind of always was, but now it really is, your ability to defend is now very much not in relation to your man, even your team. It's in relation to how well you work with your teammates, and that's a uh-huh. hard thing to wrap your head around. As so whether you're doing it well um, on an individual level, point. as a coach, you know that's not really your problem. But I just think it's a very interesting thing that is happening for sure and just how it's changing defense. It's almost like defenses are like football coverages. Now you're playing like a cover two, almost. You have to think of it that way Yeah. now. And I, I just think it's, that's the fundamental change. That's why it's called space out is you're, you're now looking at basketball as a five on five shape more so than a series of one-on-one matchups. All right. So this is the last thing I'll ask you, just your opinion from having gone through this process of comparing different decades and the historical aspects of how the game was played and whatnot. Is the game better, worse, or just different? Boy, you could go a lot of different ways with that question. (laughs) Um, In a sense, everything is better as we go forward because that's how technology works. One of the things that like history is it should be taught as is like the the people who were innovators and we're talking players from the 80s and 90s but also you know there's a whole the whole chapter on sort of dribbling and footwork where now these sort of the whole like kind of manipulation of the gather step and how that's changed how players move someone had to be manu someone had to be Giannis, someone had to be james harden to have to provide the template for these sorts of new forms of movement and that's what history is you know it obviously the people who are building off those guys are going to be better so in a sense the game is obviously better i happen to like this more because there is more to focus on like there are just more ways to get into the same thing i sort of love tinkering underneath the hood like i don't know what you thought of like the philly miami game five but to me the thing that was the key to the game was that Miami changes the matchups so that Jimmy Butler's on Tyrese Maxey and indirectly that limits James Harden because now when they run the Harden and B pick and roll after the switch, Jimmy Butler is no longer in that action. He's mucking it up. Mm-hmm. So to me, like there's like a cascading effect that you can create with analyzing the game. That's interesting that I like better this way. I do think it's a little harder to follow for, mm-hmm. for an average fan. I mean, there's just a lot more stuff happening. I mean, even the spatial elements, even if you're playing just sort of standing still and driving kicking, I do think there's just so many different ways. There's just the the court is bigger. There's more places that things happen. So to me, in some ways, it's harder to follow. I mean, I think one of the reasons we had an illegal defense rule is that cynically, if you throw the ball in the post and the stars are getting it all the time and one-on-one, that's pretty easy to follow for Mm -hmm. an average person. And I think I think what's happening is it is harder to watch a game and see like kind of all the different levers. There's so many different depending relationships. So I can understand someone saying, man, I just want it to be a lot simpler. Like it was just easier. I can see this. So that's not me. I can understand that. 
I also think the one last thing I'll say on this topic is I'd spent a little bit in the book kind of talking about a guy named John McClendon. Have you heard of him? Yes. A lot, a lot, not everybody has amazingly, huh. you know, where he's James Naismith's disciple, uh, one of the most famous fast breaking coaches of all time, really never got his due because of the segregation at the time. And he was someone who, he had this style of play where you had this like kind of, you had to shoot within eight seconds. You had to get the ball up within four seconds. He's doing this in like the fifties. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Oh, Mike D'Antonio, that's exactly what he did. But he had this philosophy, not necessarily because it was the way that he thought was best to win, but because he thought it was what James Naismith wanted. Hmm. He thought this was the game that James Naismith wanted. It was supposed to be flowing. It was supposed to be kind of up and down. It was supposed to be, not unstructured, but it was supposed to, it was, it was a game built to combat football and to not be as rough. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't like the roughness. So in some ways the NBA has kind of been chasing the game that they have now for many, many years. And it's kind of ironic that now they have the game, they can't seem to sell it, but that's a whole separate topic. <laughs> um, but I think in some ways, not to say that like what James Naismith wants is like what we should be striving for. You know, that'd be like saying, the constitution we should literally interpret it strictly i'm sorry (laughs) should i not be going there i don't know but i do think it's like a relevant data point to note that this is more in line with how james nathan saw the game that he invented and that i don't know what that means but if you're talking about like sort of the game has gotten out of control or the game has gotten whatever it is it's probably more likely that the game got out of where it was in Hmm. previous eras. You know, ironically, James Naismith never thought we needed coaches. So (laughs) take it with whatever you will for that. So maybe let's not adopt everything James Naismith says. (laughs) Right, right, right. But yeah, I think that's like an interesting data point. At least, again, personally, I like it better. I think coaches, there's more interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. It's also probably more stressful, (laughs) I imagine. You feel like you have less control over it. You feel like... I imagine more of your job is like psychological with uh, players rather than sort of X's and O's and diagramming Mm -hmm. and stuff. But I, as a fan, I think, and as someone who likes complexity and enjoys sort of the way basketball can kind of mirror life in that it, you never, you're sort of building on what you do. This to me is more fun than a style where you're walking it up. You have Mm -hmm. a plan, militaristic executing it. If I wanted that, I'd watch football. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. Again, the book is spaced out how the NBA's three-point revolution changed everything you thought you knew about basketball. As we said, not available until November, but I'm sure this whet some people's appetite. I'm really looking forward to it. And you can pre-order that now on Amazon. So I'll be sure to link the book there in the description so you can click on that and get access to that. This was awesome stuff, Mike. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank to come you for on. having me. Could have gone a lot longer, but I want to be respectful of your time. So I appreciate you doing this. <laughs>